Let's start with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do bow in our hearts low before you, for you are worthy of all worship and all praise and glory and honor. Lord, we delight to come together as the body of Christ. We thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to fellowship with one another, to edify each other, to study the Word of God together. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you'll illumine our minds and show us the truth. Help us to incorporate it into the way that we think and the way that we live, that we might bring greater honor and glory to you. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is week number 36 in our study of eschatology. And we're over in Daniel uh, chapter 40. And last week we began to look at this chapter and we looked at uh, some of the details of the temple as Ezekiel saw them in this vision. This is a vision He's not measuring an actual physical temple, but rather he's seeing a vision given to him by God. Uh, but it looks like it's real to him, and he certainly um, is able to measure things, or at least the angel with him is able to ma ma measure things. He has been commanded to observe all these things that he might give them to the house of Israel. So. Daniel is in this vision, but later he'll write these words down. He'll communicate them to the people of Israel. And we're privileged to have what he wrote to them that we can study today. Um, we looked at the gates last time. There are six gates that are apparently identical. Three of them lead from outside the temple into the outer court. And then three identical gates lead from the outer court into the inner court. And the only people allowed in the inner court would be priests. So apparently the people, as we'll see today, bring their sacrifices up into the gate, but don't enter into the inner court. That's the place where the priests uh, do their ministry. And so, but the people are able to come up on the gates and to see all that's going on in the temple area. So, um, we have gates that are on uh, the east side, the north side, and the south side. There's no gate on the west side, and we'll see why that it is, is today. Um, we're, we've seen all these very precise measurements. Um, what the pillars are, what the walls are, how tall the gates are, how wide the gates are, how big the thresholds are, all these different dimensions that we've been given. Um, and you may get the impression from the speed at which I'm going, not only last week, but this week especially, moving through these passages, that I don't think these are important. It's not that at all. Um, I, I mean, every piece of scripture is important. There's no piece of scripture that's any less important than the others. But <clears throat> my goal here is not for you to memorize all these sizes and dimensions and everything, right? It's to get an overall picture. And so as we gain that overall understanding of what this temple looks like, um, we don't need to spend a lot of time in the dimensional things that he shows us. We certainly need to look at them and talk about them but we don't need to linger there. Um, 
But we do need to keep in mind there's no other place in Scripture where the description of the millennial temple is given. This is the only place in all of Scripture that this temple is mentioned or um, is given to us. And so it's important from that aspect, if no other, that Daniel's the only one who saw this, only one who wrote it down, just as John is the only one who saw many of the things that he saw in the tribulation. Um, this is further revelation that God only gave to Ezekiel. Daniel doesn't see it. Isaiah didn't see it. Jeremiah didn't see it. The minor prophets don't see it. Um, they see Christ reigning, but they don't see the temple in the way that it is presented here. And so for that reason, it is uh, important. But if you were here when we moved through the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel, we did that at a pretty good pace, three, four chapters every week, um, because there's just so much detail there of the wars and the warnings of Israel that we just picked out select passages that we need to look at. And today we'll pick out certain verses that I believe um, have more information in them that we need to understand. So um, last week we went through the first 37 verses of Ezekiel 40. And um, we saw where the angel leads Ezekiel through mainly the outer court, the gates that go into the outer court and the outer court area. Um, and so we'll pick up this morning in verse 38 of chapter 40 of Ezekiel and go hopefully to the end of chapter 41 um, as we move at a pretty good pace here. So when we looked at the gates, we said there was a porch, but we didn't look at any of the details of what's going on on the porches of um, these gates. And so they have large areas that you can look out over um, first the outer courtyard and then the inner courtyard because these gates are raised up. And so you can see things uh, from up on these porches. And so today we'll um, see some details of what goes on in the porches. The outer gates, um, apparently nothing happens on the porches. Maybe people are standing around conversing, talking and all that. But there's a lot that goes on on the inner court gate, uh, gates, on the porches that are there. So we'll just begin in verse 38 and read a few of these verses here. Ezekiel 40:38. A chamber with its doorways was by the side pillars at the gates. There they rinsed the burnt offerings. In the porch of the gate were two tables on each side on which to slaughter the burnt offering the sin offering, and the guilt offering. On the outer side, as one went up to the gateway toward the north, were two tables, and on the other side of the porch of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on each side of the gate, next, each side next to the gate, are eight tables on which they slaughter sacrifices. For the burnt offerings, there were four tables of hewn stone, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half wide and one cubit high on which they lay the instruments with which they slaughter the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. The double hooks on one hand 
hand one hand breadth in length were installed in the house all around and on the tables was the flesh of the offering so here we've got the place where the animals are killed and so apparently the people would bring their animals that are going to be sacrificed up onto this gate get to the inner part where the porch is and then hand it over to the priests and what is there are eight tables both on each side of the gate there's four tables and you notice the double hooks apparently to tie ropes so you could tie the animal down as you were ready to kill it and uh, then off to the side is a chamber where they rinse the animals before laying them up on the table and so all these details given here the real question that should come into your mind is why in the world are there sacrifices in this temple because as we know Christ was the final sacrifice he fulfilled all of the Old Testament sacrifices but here now all of a sudden we've got sacrifices uh, for sin um, for guilt um, and then what's the third one um, sin and guilt and burnt offerings are being given same kind of sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament system and so the question certainly comes why in the world would God here give Ezekiel details about additional sacrifices even at the end of um, the current age as we move into the millennial age all through the millennial age you have these sacrifices going on for a thousand years and so why why does God once again institute um, these sacrifices and just so we understand that Christ did fulfill all the sacrifices that that system that was established by God um, I believe to foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled by Christ and we see that over in Hebrews chapter 10 so I want to go there and just read a few verses out of Hebrews um, so that we can we get a picture of this and then we maybe try to answer the question of why in the world are there sacrifices in this temple and um, I want to start at verse 1 in chapter 10 of Hebrews and just read down 15 or so verses so that we see clearly that the writer of Hebrews who we do not know by the way uh, a lot of people said it was Paul but it wasn't Paul because the guy who writes Hebrews say um, makes a statement that we learned secondhand these truths meaning that he was not an apostle he didn't hear it directly from Jesus Christ he heard one of the apostles teach what he writes about here and so it's not one of the apostles who wrote this book is this book is actually unknown who wrote it but clearly is writing to the Hebrews um, because of all the things that he says in chapter 10 is talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ it begins for the law since it had since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year 
make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do the will of God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. And then we come to the millennial kingdom where there are offerings for sin, for burnt offerings, and also for guilt offerings. And so you say, okay, how do I reconcile that with the book of Hebrews where it says there's no longer an offering for sin because Christ offered the once-for-all final sacrifice? So that's a pretty good question, right? Which is why some of the people believe that this is not actually going to happen. Because it wouldn't make any sense to have additional sacrifices since Christ was the once for all sacrifice. And with him there's no longer a need for a sacrifice. So it's a pretty good argument, right? And no, no, I, I think there's a reason for these sacrifices. And, you know, even there in Hebrews, it said that with the offering of a sacrifice is the reminder of sins. Okay, and people in the millennial kingdom are not sinless. Now, there's no great uprisings against Christ because he rules the whole world. But that doesn't mean there's no sin in the world. These are human beings that continue to live just as you and I live today. They continue um, to have to do, perform duties such as raising crops and 
you know, raising animals and livelihoods. And I mean, that all goes on in the millennial kingdom. And there certainly would be, anytime you've got people together, there's going to be personal conflicts between people who just don't get along. And um, those things will be quickly resolved, but yet there will still be sin. And so I believe these sacrifices, especially for those in Israel, are a reminder that they're still sinful people, but yet commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that has paid for their sins already. Similar to us taking the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of the sacrifice that Christ gave and that we are sinful people and we are in need of a sacrifice. So for the Israelites in the millennial kingdom, these sacrifices serve in the same way. They're a reminder that there was need for a sacrifice and that they're still sinful people. And yet the one who made that sacrifice is being commemorated and celebrated and worshipped for having given that sacrifice. And this is the way that God ordains that they do that, is by offering these sacrifices. You know, will the rest of the world outside of Israel still partake of the Lord's Supper? I don't know. You know, maybe. Maybe the, the church, which exists um, during the Millennial Kingdom outside of the nation of Israel, Certainly there will be people who believe in Jesus Christ who are not Israelites. Um, will they still take of the Lord's Supper to commemorate his sacrifice? Maybe. And so I think that's what's going on here is that they're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by offering these animals. It's clear that the offering of animals never did and never will pay for sins. God says he takes no pleasure in them, so why does he ordain them? To remind us of the one true sacrifice. So that's my best understanding, is that it is, these sacrifices are to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We, as we continue on in the temple, we'll see that God is in the temple, literally, in the temple. But no mention is made of Jesus Christ being in the temple. So where is his throne and where does he reign? We know it's in Jerusalem, but it's not in the temple. And there is no throne in the temple. Uh, at least it's not described to Ezekiel in that way. So Jesus Christ is elsewhere because he is still in bodily form. He's still a human, fully human. And we'll see today that I think some of the symbols represent that humanity of Christ. Uh, point to it and so he is not everywhere at one time like God is he's in a particular place like a human would be and so that throne is somewhere else it's not in the temple and that's where Jesus Christ is seated as he reigns over the whole world so um, not exactly the way we think about the millennial kingdom right I mean that's why we're going through this is so that we'll understand better what goes on in the Millennial Kingdom, but not everybody is a true believer in Jesus Christ during the Millennial Kingdom. There's no wars, there's no skirmishes, there's no uprisings because they're put down quickly with an iron rod and they're, they're quickly negotiated and dealt with, but yet they're still sinful people 
and there's still people who don't believe in Jesus Christ that live during the millennial reign. They will, they will give honor to Christ because um, it says the nations will parade before him and give him honor. So that's not in the temple, clearly. It's somewhere else as they parade before him. And um, like you would do to any um, leader, respected person, that you would give them honor, but that doesn't necessarily you actually believe in everything they proclaim. And that's how it'll be during the millennial kingdom. There'll be nations giving Jesus Christ honor, but they won't believe in his message. We see that clearly at the end, back in chapters 38 and 39, where we have the war where all the nations come against Israel at the end of the millennial reign. Those have got to be unbelievers, right? <clears throat> Thinking they could defeat Jesus Christ and the Israelites. They can't but yet they are deceived in believing they can. So those are unbelievers. So there's a lot of unbelievers during the millennial reign. Um, and these sacrifices here are given by Israelites, ministered by the priests of the Israelites. We'll see who that is in a couple minutes in order to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not to actually cleanse sins. Okay, but they, they are very ritualistic. They are offered often. They are offered in particular ways um, that God prescribes. And um, we'll even see that he has a person called the prince whose job it is to raise the animals specifically for the sacrifices. So um, God intends for this to take place. And it will in the millennial kingdom. So I, I still believe this is all literal. Um, there'll be additional reasons that we'll see why we believe that. And the, but these sacrifices don't cleanse sins. They never did. They never will. They just commemorate and point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's my best understanding about why we have sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Go ahead. I, yeah, Jews will still be Jews and the church will still be church. There's no doubt that Jews will still be Jews. Okay, because that's given to us explicitly here that all the um, Israelites are brought back to the promised land and it's divided out and that's where they live and that's where they have their cities and that's the way it's parsed out. There's no doubt about that. Do, do I believe that means all the Jews will be there? Yes. Doesn't mean that all Jews make it into Israel for the millennial reign. You remember back at the beginning where the shepherds are removed and then God comes through the flock and he says, I will judge one sheep against the other, meaning you're a true believer, you're not. You're not in my fold. You're out of the kingdom. You're not in Israel. Maybe some of them will still be there but not believe. That's possible. But there is clear in the book of Ezekiel that not all people who are ethnic Jews make it into the kingdom of God. Some of them are removed for their unbelief which is exemplified by their 
way they treat their fellow Jews. And so we've seen that. And that's a little hard. That pushes against some people. Um, but nevertheless, that's what is given to us here in Scripture. The best way to think about, I believe, the statements like over in Romans 11 that says um, basically that all Jews will be saved, the best way to think about that is he's talking about national Israel, not about individual people. And when you get to the individual people, then you go to Ezekiel and you see that not everybody makes it because he judges one sheep against another. He removes the leaders. So um, I think that's the best way to understand those passages that are given. And one day we'll look at those in more detail. Um, because they are important. Now, so on the, there's provision made for sacrifices in the north gate that leads to the inner court. That's what we're talking about here. You know, you could read it that these sacrifices happen at all three gates, the north, south, and east. Um, but that's probably not the best way to think about it. It appears that all this happens just at the north gate. Um, yeah, it could be at the south gate too, but he doesn't say that. Um, it just kind of implies that. So we'll say with just the north gate. But still, there's eight tables. There's a lot of sacrifices going on here. Um, there's a lot of animals dying in this northern gate. Okay, then you move on down into verse 44. And again, there are differences in these gates as you move through them that go into the inner court. You'll notice here in verse 44, from the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one of which was at the side of the north gate with its front toward the south and one at the side of the south gate facing toward the north. He said to me, this is the chamber which faces toward the south intended for the priest who keep charge of the temple. But the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priest who keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok who from the sons of Levi come near to the Lord to minister to him. So you see a division of the gates and you see a division of the priests. Okay, so the gates, um, apparently these are singing priests who are in these gates. And you've got one in the north gate which faces to the south and one in the south gate which faces to the north. So they're looking at each other across the inner court. And they're singing while these sacrifices are being offered. Don't know what they sing. We're not given that. But they sing. And so there, there's a lot of noise, if you would. You know, we don't know if they have instruments that are playing with them or exactly how this is going on. But you have these choirs of priests who are out on the porches singing across the courtyard is the best way to think about it. And then in one of these choirs are just the sons of Levi, except for those of Zadok. 
And then in the other choir, in the other gate, are the sons of Zadok. Now, you remember who Zadok was. When David had many sons, right? And actually, some of them rebelled against him. And when they rebelled against him, some of the priests went with them to bless them and to join them. But Zadok stayed with David and was there when Solomon reigned also. So he was faithful to the house of David. And basically him alone stood and blessed Solomon when he took the throne from David, blessed David as he died, uh, then blessed Solomon through his reign. And so Zadok was faithful to the house of David. And so for that, he, his, his descendants are here in the millennial kingdom rewarded. So as you think about this, not only the sons of Zadok, but all the sons of Levi have to be identified. All the sons of every tribe have to be identified because they live in certain lands. So somewhere there's a record of the Jews who descended and who they're descended from. Now today, if you ask a lot of Jews, they have no idea who they descended from. But I think if you go to the Orthodox Jews, you'll probably find they know at least part of their lineage. Well, somewhere there's a record of the rest of it. We don't know where that is. Maybe God just tells them which tribe they're from. Don't know. But there's a record because when you get to the land and where they live, they live there by the 12 original tribes. So somehow they have to know which tribe they belong to so they know where to go live. And the sons of Levi have to know so they can be priests. Now, all the priests are not in the temple because we'll see, and I think we did see, that there are designated cities for the Levites to live in throughout all the kingdom. So apparently what happens is that certain ones are selected, they travel to the temple, they stay there for a while, they perform these duties, and then they travel back. Because, as we'll see shortly, there are chambers all around the temple for the priests. Now is that where they live, or is it just where they change clothes? It's not exactly clear. We know that they change clothes there. And we'll see that given specifically in Scripture. But there are all these chambers for the priests. There's even kitchens for the priests to use to cook. There may be what, on the west side, what you would call a mess hall. Because it's a big, it's a big building and it's open. And we'll see that detailed here as we go through this also. Maybe that's where the priests dwell and that's where they eat and that's where they cook uh, the food because they get to partake of some of the sacrifices or, or to feed them. So there's a lot going on here in this temple. And I, you know, do these guys sing, is it continuous? Um, probably during the daylight hours it is continuous. Um, at night, maybe not. We don't know. It's not given to us, but they're there singing and the inner court is not so big that, you know, if you're standing in the east gate up on the porch, 
you can see the south gate right there, and you can see the north gate right there. I mean, they're not far apart. Um, I believe it says that the inner court is 100, it's 100 cubits by 100 cubits. So it's only 150 feet wide. So it's not a long way to the other porches. So you can see each other pretty well up on these porches as the singing goes on, as the sacrifices are being slaughtered over on the north gate. Um, you know, you can see all that's happening from these porches. So very different than the outer gates where we're given no details about the porches at all. There's a lot of activity going on um, here on these porches to the inner, inner court. Okay, um, so the sons of Zadok are there serving. Uh, they're the ones who actually go into the inner court. They're the ones who minister the altar. They're the ones who go into the temple proper. The nave and the holy of holies um, would be only the sons of Zadok who get to go into those areas. Because here it says they're the ones who come near to God. So, um, so we move on down into verse 47. And here's where you get a description of the inner court. He measured the court a perfect square, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits wide, and the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the porch. Sorry about that. Then he brought me to the porch of the temple and measured each side pillar of the porch, five cubits on each side, and the width of the gate was three cubits on each side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits and the stairway by which it was ascended were columns belonging to the side pillars on one, one on each side. So you're in this court and the only thing in the court is the altar which is sitting in the middle in front of the steps that lead up to the temple of God. Okay, and this temple has a porch on it that is 20 cubits wide and 11 cubits deep. So we've talked about this. The temple proper is the same size it was in the temple that Solomon built and the temple that Zerubbabel built. It's only 20 cubits wide and a total of 60 cubits deep. Then it, you'll see later he says it's a, it's a hundred cubits. Well, you got these thick walls, right, on the outside and then also a thick wall between the nave and the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And so, um, and then you got this porch out on the front that's the same width as the building. It's 20 cubits wide. So, um, and it's got steps that lead up to it. So he's described the sacrifices. He's described the singing that goes on. Then he begins to describe the inside of the temple and what it looks like. And th this goes on for a little while. But we'll look at some of this um, because I think some of it is different certainly than the way that I thought of it. Um, maybe not for you, but it is for me. 
verse 1 of 41. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the side pillars. Now, you know what the nave is, right? That's the holy area, the place. You remember the tabernacle had two chambers, one called the holy place and then one called the holy of holies. Well, the holy place is the nave. Nave simply means temple. So it's just part of the temple. And so the nave is 40 cubits. It's 20 cubits by 40 cubits. Okay, and he'll tell us that here. The width of the entrance was 10 cubits, and the sides of the entrance were 5 cubits on each side. And he measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits. So it's 20 cubits wide, 40 cubits deep, or um, if you just want to use one and a half, it's 60 feet wide. It's 30 feet wide and 60 feet deep. Okay, he measured its length, 20 cubits, and width, 20 cubits, before the nave, and he said to me, this is the most holy place. Okay, so it, you don't recognize it when he first says it here, that as he moves in, so then he went inside and measured the side pillars. He's moving into the area of the Holy of Holies. Okay, because that's when he says, that it measures 20 cubits by 20 cubits, same width as the other, only 20 cubits deep, and this is the most holy place. So that is the holy of holies, is what he's measuring at this point. Um, this is the most holy place. So that is where in the old tabernacles, in the tabernacle, in the temple that Solomon built, not in the temple that Zerubbabel built, where God dwelled. He was, uh, remember in there was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and that God dwelt on the mercy seat only in the temple that Solomon built and the tabernacle. He left the tabernacle and then went into the temple and then he left the temple never to return into the temple. The temple that Zerubbabel built not only did not have the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat, it also did not um, have the presence of God. And which is, remember, we looked at where the priests were weeping um, because it was such a pitiful temple compared to the original temple. Well, that was one of the reasons why, because the presence of God never went into the temple that Zerubbabel built. So, and that's the one that Herod expanded. That's the one that was there when Jesus Christ was there. The only presence of God in the temple that Zerubbabel built was when Jesus Christ walked into his courts. That's the only time God ever visited that temple was when the Messiah himself was in that temple. So, um, <clears throat> but here you see clearly that there is a holy of holies in this millennial temple. And we'll see um, chapter 43 where God actually enters into the temple. So um, it's coming. We'll see it in a little while. Um, I want to show you something. You know, we said there's no veil between these two. We'll look over at verses 23 and 24 of this chapter. Can't be of this chapter, right? Yeah, 23 and 24. The nave and the sanctuary each had double doors. 
Each of the doors had two leaves, two swinging leaves, two leaves for one door and two leaves for the other. So there are doors that lead into the nave from the outside and then doors that lead from the nave into the holy, the holy place. So there's no veil, but there are doors. And those doors, you've seen houses that have a double front door. You know, I've got a couple of neighbors that have double front doors. They both open into the house. Well, that's what this is, except for there's two sets of them side by side. There's four doors. There's two doors, but each having two leaves. There's four swinging leaves that lead into the Holy of Holies and that lead from the porch into the holy place. So there's no veil, but there are doors. And we're not told if the doors are closed or if they're open or not. So are they always open? Don't know. Are they always closed and the priests have to open them? Don't know. But there are doors. I was originally thinking there was nothing between the holy place and the holy of holies, but I was wrong. Because here clearly he says there are two double doors that lead into there. So four leaves that lead in. So there are doors. Now I'll tell you those doors are wooden and they have carvings on them which is one of the reasons I think they exist. But um, we'll come to that next week. And we'll see that this, uh, this inner nave and actually the outside of it is paneled with wood so that it can have carvings on it because otherwise it'd be stony and kind of hard to carve into. So they panel it with wood and then carve carvings into it. And the same is true for the side chambers that we're the priests are. So we'll look at all that next time here in chapter 41. Okay, so that's where we'll leave off today and pick it up next week. So thanks for your time.